Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm really uh, pleased to be joined today for a conversation by Tal Avrech, um, who is uh, the International Relations Coordinator and also the head researcher at a really interesting and important organization called the Negev Coexistence Forum for Civil Equality. We were supposed to be joined by her colleague, Aisha Ziadna, um, who is the director of the Sabil Leadership Institute at the Arab Jewish Center for Empowerment, uh, Equality, and Cooperation in the Negev. Um, unfortunately, Aisha was not feeling well, um, but we're still very, very um, honored to be joined uh, by Tal to ha talk about um, a subject that doesn't get that much attention in the American press, but is really important to understand uh, social and political dynamics inside Israel, and that is the the region we call the Negev, or it's called the Nakub, and uh, and the Bedouin population that lives there. So, uh, Tal, thanks very much for being with me. Thank you for having me. So maybe we'll just start in, at a really in some really basic questions. Um, what is the Negev, uh, uh, and who lives there? So the Negev, or as the Bedouin and indigenous people of the of the area will call it, the Nakab, is uh, the desert part of Israel, the southern region of Israel, currently Israel. Um, it was uh, inhabited by the Bedouin people 200, almost 200 years ago, even more so. We don't know the exact date. So they have been living in the Nakab for centuries. Uh, also during the Ottoman period and the British mandate, they are semi-nomadic people, which means that unlike the perception uh, in uh, the Israeli uh, community um, where they are viewed as nomadic, they are only semi-nomadic. So this means that they used to move around in the area of the Nakab according to seasons because they are also uh, uh, herders and they grow uh, all sorts of, uh, of uh, agricultural um, I don't know how, they, like, for example, watermelons, olive trees. So depending on the seasons, they would move around in the area. Um, according to the international community, they are also considered to be uh, indigenous peoples to the area. But uh, Israel does not recognize their indigenity and their uh, connection to the, their ancestral land. Um, so they are divided into tribes. Prior to 1948, there were about... Um, I don't know how many people, but about 40,000 Bedouins in the Nakab. Um, and after the war, after the Nakba, uh, only 11,000 remained. The rest were either expelled or uh, uh, fled to Gaza, Sinai Peninsula, uh, West Bank, and Jordan. Uh, and the remaining tribes were concentrated in an area northern part of the city uh, of Beersheba, which is the largest city in the southern region, um, in a closed zone called the Sayaj area, which means a fence in Arabic, um, under military regime. So much like other Palestinians, they were also under military regime and they were not allowed to move around and go back to their ancestral land or herd outside of the limited area. Um, 
Sorry, I forgot the rest of the question. No, no, th this is great. So I, I know all Palestinian citizens of Israel were under military law until 1966, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and and was, so was that lifted uh, for the Bedouin in 1966 as well, or are there, st they still, are there still some limitations? No. Uh, I mean, the military regime was, uh, or the military uh, authority was lifted as well for the Bedouin in the Nakab. Um, however, they were not allowed to go back to their lands. Um, so a lot of villages were completely, uh, I don't know how to say, but uh, they they do not exist anymore. But there are some uh, ancient villages that are still uh, in the Siyaj area that were there before 1948 and before other Bedouin from other tribes were moved to the same area. So if Bedouins were living in some other part of, of the Negev, the Nakab, um, before uh, 1948, they cannot return to those areas. They must still remain within this particular encl enclosed area of the, of the northern, uh, north of Beersheba. Majority of them live there. Mm. But there are some little villages or uh, little tribes still living in other areas of uh, the Nakab. Um, but the majority of them were not able to go back. Um, yeah, so yeah, the majority of the people live in the, that triangle, northern north to Beersheba, but not all. And this is a um, oh, this is a Muslim population and an Arabic-speaking population. Yes, right? it, they are one hundred percent Muslim, uh, and they speak Arabic, but. Uh, as far as I know, their language is much more uh, similar to. They have like a different dialect than than Palestinians in other parts of Israel. Um, more similar to uh, what you imagine they used to speak in the old days, um, according to what I know. So, yeah. So in the United States, when people talk. Um, Inside the Green Line, they tend to use these terms: is uh, Arab-Israeli, um, Druze, Bedouin, um, and and often not use the term Palestinian. They often, which kind of ref reserve that for talking about people in Gaza or the West Bank, or maybe refugees in the diaspora. Talk a little bit about um, the relationship between Bedouin identity and Palestinian identity historically and and today. So. I would clarify that Bedouins are a part of the Palestinian people um, according to how they define themselves. So they are, there are people that would say that they are not part of the Palestinian people, just like there are some Jews who, want, uh, uh, who are not part of the Israeli uh, uh, nationality. Or, you know, so it varies among the community. In the past, uh, there was a big uh, difference. So uh, not a lot of, of uh, Palestinian Bedouin residing in Israel would uh, claim uh, this, you know, identity. But today, I think a lot of young people that I work with realize that uh, this was like sort of a way to um, divide. divide. Mm -hmm. The, the Palestinian national struggle. 
because Bedouins do the army unlike other uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, and like you said, they are not referred to as Palestinians. Uh, they're referred to as Bedouins or Arabs. Um, so it was, I think, in a way, was a was a mechanism to divide and to separate the two. Um, there are a lot of cultural differences, uh, but I do think that there are cultural differences between people living in in the triangle in the center of Israel and people living in the north, and of course, you know, like in the West Bank, in Gaza. So it's natural to have people that are, you know, in every area that have different cultural uh, characteristics. Right. So we could talk a little bit about how it came to be that many Bedouin served in the, uh, in the military, since obviously most Palestinian citizens of Israel do not serve in the military. The Druze, many of them do. But what can you t- talk a little bit about how it was that, that Bedouins ended up serving in the military and, and if you think that's changing and, 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 and uh, what that, how, that came, how that came to be? Well, to tell you the the truth, this is not my area of expertise. NCF, uh, the Negative Coexistence Forum, we don't deal with this issue. So it's kind of hard. But from my general knowledge, I know know that um, Bedouin in the past, during the military regime and after, were... At the beginning, they were considered, like the rest of Palestinians, as enemies of the state and a security risk. But I think that the military governor at the time realized that they are able to be allies to the state and basically guard the the borders. Mm. Uh, they had a lot of connections with people in Gaza, West Bank, and Sinai, and Jordan. So... Um, it was a way of uh, of of uh, using them to to guard the borders of Israel and 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 to bring them into the national identity more. Um, however, I'm not sure what is the you know like declared reason or what is the the purpose behind it. I just know that I'm not sure about the percentage of of people who serve the army. Uh, I know that there is a debate inside the community whether they should do it or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not obvious that they should. Not a lot of people do it. It's not like it's obvious that I served the army. Right, right, as a Jewish Israeli. Yeah, as a Jewish Israeli. So talk a little bit about the challenges that the Bedouin community in the Negev Nakab faces. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think the main the main challenge is forced urbanization and forced uh, uh, evictions. So um, throughout the, all the governments of Israel, doesn't matter if they are from the left or from the right or from the center. All of them tried to settle the Bedouin issue. Uh, or the Bedouin land issue uh, without consulting with the community and without um, taking into account their uh, unique characteristic and their unique way of life, their traditional way of life. So in the 70s, the government decided to move all the Bedouin and concentrate them in townships. So they established seven uh, governmental planned townships and tried to force people to move into these 
townships. However, they were very badly planned uh, and people didn't want to move there. Uh, they had a really good life living in the villages, you know, with uh, very um, a lot of space for, for their agriculture purposes and to herd. Women had more uh, power uh, in the structure of the tribe in the village because uh, tribes are members of the family. So she was uh, able to walk around without a hijab, without covering, you know, freely and to take part in the in the economy structure. But once they had to move into the township, all this changed. Uh, women were much more limited. So in the 70s and throughout until the 90, late 90s, they established seven townships, tried to force them to move there. And then um, all the processes that came after all the plans, including the Prava plan, which is the bigger and the biggest plan so far to forcefully uh, transfer them into and concentrate them into the township. Um, all of all of this plan was was were pla- uh, constructed without consulting with the Bedouin community. The Israeli government might say, yeah, we did speak with one sheikh or another, but in general, there was no cooperation. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem because what the government is, of Israel is trying to do is to concentrate the Bedouins on the, the least land and, you know, to put the majority of people on least uh, space um, and also um, there is the issue of more than 35 unrecognized villages that these are villages that the government of Israel refuses to recognize so they might sit on ancestral land and they might have been moved by the military regime to that place and now uh, the government of Israel will not recognize them, will not give them any basic infrastructure. So no roads, no um, educational facilities, no uh, clinics, water, connection to the electricity grid. So these people are citizens of Israel, and let's be clear about that, but they do not receive the same rights as I receive as a Jewish citizen of Israel living in Tel Aviv. Um, the phenomenon of unrecognized villages, I think, is important to to mention because it just it came to be not that they like as the government of Israel wants to say that they expanded all over and they just came there and started building villages illegally. Majority of people, like I said, were moved there or either set, uh, were living there prior to 1948. And in 1965, the Israeli government enacted uh, the planning and construction law, which basically declared the the majority of the Sayaj area, the northern part of, of the Nakab, as agriculture area, which means nobody could build there. So all the houses and all the villages and uh, retroactively and actively became illegal. So to claim that the, a lot of the time the Israeli government claims that these people are, are trespassers and, and invaders and, and lawbreakers, law whereas the law, you know, basically retroactively made them illegal. So I think that's the biggest problem. Um, another issue is poverty. The Bedouin community is the most impoverished uh, community in Israel. 
um, due to lack of recognition, uh, due to many, many decades of neglect and discrimination. Um, there's more than 60% p- uh, families that are under the poverty line, and that is not even including the 92, almost 92 people living in unrecognized villages because they are not surveyed by the, the, by the government of Israel in these, you know, like, uh, researchers. Uh, so we don't even know it might be a lot higher. Um, so I think these are the two main issues um, that the Bedouin are facing uh, at the moment. And what, is, what do you think has been the, the, the motivation for Israeli government policy towards Bedouins? I think that in the past, um, it was the issue of land only. Okay, so uh, I don't know. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with Ben Gurion, our first uh, uh, prime minister, who basically uh, claimed that the Negev was the Nakab was empty, and that we need to make the Nakab bloom. You know, and thus he wanted to move majority of people to the Nakab and you know make it bloom, build a lot of of, uh, of Jewish villages there and. But it wasn't empty. <laughs> it was inhabited by people that lived differently than the Western idea of what a village or, or a town should look like. But they did live there. Um, and I think that, the, that if, you, if, you, if you think about the land issue, then the majority of, of, of Bedouin who claim uh, uh, ownership to the land uh, did not... Uh, receive any any um, acknowledgement from the government of Israel or from the Israeli courts to their ownership unless they sold it to the Zionist movement prior to 1948. And I think the the best example to uh, to this uh, ideology is the village of Um Umm Hiran that will soon be evacuated. in order to build a Jewish-only village on the, the ruins of their houses. So, yeah, um, to Judaize the Nakab, I guess. <laughs> um, and, and, um, and how much movement of Jews has there been into the Negev Nakab um, since 1948? Yeah, I don't know the exact number, yeah. but they are... They are um, I think the Bedouins are only a third of the people in the Nakab, and they reside on a, like four and a half percent of the land. Mm-hmm. Majority of land is, like I said, for agriculture purposes or have been going through processes of afforestation, um, and some are for military use a lot. And the rest is uh, going under uh, sort of like what the government of Israel wants to call development plans. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't know how many uh, Jewish settlements uh, there, I- there are in the Nakab, but I do know that since 1948, except for the seven Bedouin townships, there were, have been no new 
uh, towns or new villages built for the Arab community, for the Palestinian community, citizens of Israel. And what is the, how much interaction, and what is the interaction like between Jewish Israelis and um, uh, and Bedouin uh, citizens of Israel in the Negev and Nakab? I think the perce- the perception of of us. Israeli Jewish people of the Bedouins is uh, is very wrong. Um, we perceive them, and we, I mean, as a community, we the majority of of, of the people perceive them as somewhat backwards. Um, uh, like I said, invaders uh, trying to expand all over. Uh, all we hear in the news is that they are thieves. Um, we hear about, you know, like gun violence uh, in the majority of the Arab community, but also also in the Bedouin community. We hear about drugs. So similar to other countries with racial with racial issues, we view the Bedouins as as a community that. Uh, has major issues with with respecting women, and some of these are true. But uh, we must remember that there is a reason why, why uh, for all these things that is happening inside the township or the villages, it's not just because they are bad people. <laughs> there is a reason, and even if if. Uh, the culture allows for something. Once you have an oppressive state and you have discrimination, that just enhances, uh, you know, like social norms that used to exist and shouldn't exist today or should, you know, like change. Um, yeah, the, I think that the policy and the, the discrimination against the, the Bedouins just enhances all the problems that the community has. And really doesn't allow them to 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 put the effort and concentrate on changing uh, what they want to to change um and tell me a little bit about about the about the organization um uh the arab jewish center for for empowerment equality and cooperation um uh, uh, in in what what exactly what kind of work are you doing? Well, that's Aisha's uh, uh, organization. Oh yeah, sorry, the negative no, coexistence forum okay. for civil um, equality. You can talk about both. Yeah, okay. So NCF Negative Coexistence Forum for Civil Equality uh, was established in ninety seven. So for this is the reason why coexistence is in the you know, like in the name. I don't think today we would use that word anymore because at the past we had the hope. That one day we can all live together and and it will be amazing and uh, uh, so coexistence was much more a word to use in the nineties. Today, I don't know how uh, how we view it, uh, but it's a joint Arab Jewish organization, grassroots organization um, that was formed in order to to. Uh, fulfill civil rights for the Bedouin people in the Nakab, for everyone living in the Nakab. The Jewish people are receiving the civil rights, so that's why we're focusing on the Bedouin community. Um, we have uh, several projects. One of them is raising awareness, so we do tours, human rights tours, so unlike other uh, cultural tours where they take you to a Bedouin tent to drink tea and eat some uh, Bedouin pita. Um, we try to focus on the unrecognized communities and to show people 
how the government of Israel is neglecting these communities and allowing citizens of Israel who are supposed to be equal to live in a state that is just impossible. Um, we also have a big research program uh, that we try to produce accurate reports about house demolition, uh, violations of other human rights. Uh, we write uh, shadow reports to the UN and to other uh, embassies that, uh, in Israel. Uh, we do a lot of work with parliament members uh, that about especially about women's education and promoting women's employment. And I think our major project, and that's also the reason why we're here in New York, is our documentation project. We have a workshop with children where we give them cameras and teach them, professional photographers teach them how to use them. Um, but we also do uh, stills and video uh, workshops with women and men from unrecognized villages. We give them cameras for as long as they wish. We teach them how uh, to document human rights violation and what are human rights violations. And they go every week. They have uh, uh, professional photographers and, and people from our staff coming to their village to check their work, to see what they have done, where they want to, you know, evolve with their work. And, and I think this is the most successful project because it's a community documenting itself. So they choose whatever topic they want, and we just try and bring it to the forefront. So that's why we're here in Fortoville with an exhibition of four really courageous Arab Bedouin women from Um al-Khiran. And how have um, uh, Bedouin citizens of Israel organized themselves politically? I mean, uh, uh, do they, what are the challenges that, um, which political parties have they tended to support? And uh, what are some of the challenges that they face in, in political activity? Um, I think I think that uh, much like other Palestinian citizens of Israel, Bedouins have problem um, relying or trusting their their community leaders uh, at times. Um, the perception is that the Arab members of parliament do not do anything for their constitu constituency because uh, of, for example, the nation state law passing. So uh, there was a lot of rage against that in the Arab uh, community because they were saying, like, how could you let that happen? Then if you can't stop that from happening, then what is the point of, of you sitting inside the parliament? which I, I can understand, I can relate, but a lot, of, a lot of it is also a propaganda of of the Israeli press and the Israeli uh, uh, Jewish members of parliament to, you know, like to prevent people from voting for the Arab members of parliament. Um, it's hard to to... It's hard for them to have any power if they're not sitting in the government. It's almost impossible. So they usually focus on on social and economic uh, uh, laws that they can easily pass. Um, but they also don't have a lot of local uh, power uh, because the Bedouins are under under a semi-colonial regime with the Bedouin Authority for Development that 
the head of it is is a settler and it sits under the Ministry of Agriculture uh, who also was headed by a settler and they are the one who who determine so unlike for example Tel Aviv municipality where the 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 head of the municipality will get the money from all the ministries and he can decide what he wants to do when it comes to planning and construction and whatever and development and Bedouins, uh, local authorities cannot do that. Uh, they have very limited uh, ability to decide. So all the money goes through the Ministry of Agriculture and to the Bedouin Authority, and they can decide which cities to develop, which villages not, uh, where to build the road, where to build the school, and how many lots uh, uh, will be developed for construction. So... This is the reason why a lot of people don't trust in the municipalities in, or in the members of parliament. They, they, are just, they don't have enough power to make real change on the ground. However, uh, I, feel, I feel that nowadays they understand with the joint list receiving 13 mandates, they understand that... Maybe you just explain what the joint list is. Ah, okay. Right? Yeah, sorry. Um, so, um, in the past, there used to be several uh, lists, just like uh, for parla- running for parliament, just like in, in the Jewish sector, you know. Uh, so, some were Islamists, some were more uh, nationalists, some are more communists, and there is also uh, a joint Arab and Jewish list. Uh, but after Lieberman's uh, one of the uh, right-wing MKs uh, uh, issued a law that uh, uh, raises the th- threshold sorry yeah. um, then they had to join together in order, in order to, to pass to get enough seats yes so in the previous election they 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 Obviously, because of political differences, they decided to split. But then now with the whole incitement and campaign against the Arabs, they decided to join together and it proved itself. So I think people are, are, are trying to, because of the incitement, actually the Bibi's incitement and the, the, the right wing uh, uh, speaking against the Arab MKs is working, is working for them because more people are realizing that That they need to try and trust them and give them the power in order to for them to do any work at all and to represent them, which is important. Are there any Bedouin members of Knesset? I, I believe there is one I can't um, I just haven't been following yeah, yeah, it so bad, yeah. but I think there's one um, yeah one one member of, of, of parliament that is Bedouin. There's no women. There are no Bedouin women in mm. power, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, yeah, just one. So do you think that um, in terms of what it would take to fundamentally transform the, the, the status of, of, of Bedouins in Israel, I mean, is that possible? How much do you think, how much progress could be achieved within the context of a Jewish state? So obviously there are... Some uh, who further to the left, you know, who would say, "Look, this is inherent in the existence of a Jewish state that you are going to even even citizens of Israel are never going to are always going to be structurally disadvantaged. Others might say, you know, because they support a Jewish state, well, maybe that there could be real progress made even with 
even within that construct of, of political Zionism. I'm just interested in how, how you think about it. Okay, so just I'm just going to say that I'm speaking for myself yes. and I'm not speaking for my organization. Yeah. My organization uh, does not uh, reject the idea of a Jewish and democratic state, um, and we don't even address that issue at all. It's I grew up in in a Zionist house. Uh, I think my father and and my brother and sister still. Uh, would refer to themselves as Zionists. I don't refer to myself as Zionist anymore because, like you said, I find it hard to live with the idea of of uh, a Jewish democratic state. It just I haven't found a way to work that out yet. I don't know if if it could ever work out, but I I'm not saying that it can't. I I just don't know how how it can. So. I think that w- w- the difference in me came about when I realized that that you can't have one person over the other and still have a, de- a democracy. And I think the Bedouins, much like other Palestinians in, in, in the state of Israel and in the West Bank and Gaza and the occupied territories, cannot come under one state unless we realize that everyone is equal. And that's why it's, I find it hard for me to support a one-state solution, because I feel if there is a one-state, then there will be apartheid, like full-on apartheid, because if, if you want to keep Jewish majority, then you're not going to give the same voting rights to, to Palestinians, right? How are you going to keep your majority when you have more than... Uh, I think, like, how many are in the West Bank and Gaza? Like, three and a half, four? Uh, I think, I don't know the exact numbers. Yeah, but something right. around yeah, yeah. that. And then you have 20% residing inside yes. Israeli yes. borders. So how are you going to keep the Jewish majority? So I think we need to change the conversation from, from speaking about Jews and non-Jews to right. people. <laughs> right. So, and where in Israel did you grow up? I grew up in a small... What we call Moshav, which is a semi-agricultural uh, village, uh, in the center of Israel, not so far from the sea. <laughs> um, so, what is it like when you go back to that place and uh, talk fr- friends and family, and 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 I imagine they probably don't have very much contact with Bedouin. Um, and you talk about your work with Bedouin and what they experience. What it, what is it like to talk to? Israeli Jews about the experience of Bedouins, you know, who don't necessarily, you know, have that personal experience? Look, I can be very con- uh, convincing. Mm. So um, I think that when I speak to my friends and family, uh, they listen uh, on majority parts. So the issue of the land and trying to explain that the narrative that we have grew up, grown up with, that uh, they have taken over the land and they live illegally, it's it's hard to break. This, this barrier is very hard to break. It's very well uh, situated inside the, the conversation. But... Um, but I think people are, tr- are starting to realize because the situation is getting worse. They're starting to realize that not everything they thought 
is is correct but this is just in my circle so if i speak to random people uh, might be a very big s- struggle getting through to them uh, and to be honest it's hard and i i've in some sometimes i just don't put the effort in because it's <laughs> very frustrating <laughs> um and um i'm wondering what um What kind of similarities you see? I mean, you were in the United States. Obviously, the United States has its own history, um, very ugly history, um, with uh, the Native American population. Um, um, it's not something, you know, it's not something that Americans talk about very much. Um, and um, it's largely kind of ignored. Um, and I'm wondering what uh, similarities and differences you see between Israeli policy towards Bedouin and American policy towards uh, towards Native Americans. Yeah, I think I think like I said before, the main issue is the land issue, yeah. um, and also the first forced urbanization. I'm not an expert on yeah. indigenous people yeah. here in America, but I do know that uh, they have been forced to move out of the reservations into the big cities, where they were completely shocked with and were not prepared for what they would see there or didn't want. To be to move to to the cities, and then what's left in the uh, reservations are sort of like a broken broken uh, social structure and broken community where you don't have all the things you need in order to make it thrive. And it's similar to the township in in the Bedouin uh, communities because they were they didn't choose that way of life. They they wanted to stay. Uh, you know, like in in more agriculture way of life and and in the village and 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 live something that might not be, you know, like clear to us from a Western point of view, but is highly legitimate. and they they are should be allowed to to choose their way of life, you know, with the limits of the fact that they're living in in the state. Of Israel so I have been told that there had been some intimidation or harassment in terms of Bedouins voting in this most recent election I wonder if you could just talk about that yeah um, so as I said people living in unrecognized villages are don't have access to public transportation or to roads it's very hard for them to move around and I think the main connection is poverty like people who are very poor and 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 discriminated against uh, you know think about what is the next step in the day and not about you know the general political atmosphere and oh I have to vote today no if I have to bring food to the table that's my main agenda and so there has been some people trying to to get uh, to campaign for for uh, Jewish women to drive to Bedouin women to the polls so they can vote because they don't have uh, voting uh, stations in unrecognized villages and it's hard for them to travel um, even my mother participated in that but uh, the court not the court I think the the election committee uh, uh, decided that this campaign should not happen uh, so they tried to do it independently however uh, it is It did not I, I think it was successful but again the fact that the they they ruled against this amazing initiative just helping people you know like 
to I don't know like do their to to um, how do you say uh, to to transport to uh, connect or to, yeah to but um, assist yeah I'm trying to say that mm-hmm. uh, uh, to fulfill mm-hmm. you know their rights yes uh, I don't know how that can be legal or that can be wrong. Right. Um, another thing that we know is that that BB and m- members of parliament from the right wing parties have been saying horrible things ag- ag- against not only Bedouins but against Palestinian citizens of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. They. I think they have. All, they also used you know very blunt language against them that there will kill us all and you know so it was a very racial campaign but fortunately that didn't work so well for for the right-wing parties like people caught up right right um, well, thank you, uh, um, uh, Tal. I really appreciate um, you thank coming. You. I hope uh, one day I'll get to meet your colleague, Aisha, as well. Hopefully. And um, thank you for giving us some context about a subject that we don't in the United States hear enough about. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.